I'm going to read from Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah writes, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. He writes down in verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Would you pray with me? What a privilege it is today to gather in this auditorium with this assembly and rehearse these great truths about our Messiah. Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is indeed infinitely capable of having upon his shoulders the governments of the world, who is capable, even in this hour, of providing wonderful counsel, reminding us that you, our Lord, are mighty God, eternal Father. And as we have opened our heart to you, We have found you also to be the giver, the prince of peace. And so we rejoice today in you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, there are no manuals provided to new moms and dads in the delivery room on how to raise a perfect child and how to be a perfect parent, right? It isn't long, in fact, until every new mother or father realizes they are in for the ride of their lives and it is all new. In fact, I called our children's pastor this week and asked him this question. He answered it. There were 60 babies born this year to families in Colonial. 60 new babies this year in the nursery. Any nursery volunteers here? You have strength to raise your hand and thank you for that. looks like they're all busy. You know, it's interesting as you get used to the fact that children are, um, well, they think differently than you do. In fact, they don't think uh, sometimes at all. Someone from our congregation sent me this moment when their three-year-old was putting his shoes on all by himself. This is just wonderfully classic. The mother noticed that he had put his shoes on the wrong feet. She said, honey, your shoes are on the wrong feet. He looked down for a moment, then up at her with a strange look and said, mommy... I know these are my feet. (laughs) You know, I was tipped off that parenting daughters would be very, very different than I ever expected early on. I remember um, when our oldest daughter, who's now 24, just sang up here a little bit ago, her first day of kindergarten, I decided, you know, it'd be one of those special daddy-daughter moments, and I would walk her to her classroom. And I knew that she would appreciate that you know, greatly. And so we walked, parked the car. We noticed that there were, there were news trucks around. And sure enough, we're walking hand in hand. She's got on her new shoes and socks and backpack and lunchbox, all that. And we're hand in hand walking down the sidewalk. And there's somebody at the end of the sidewalk facing this way taking pictures. Took our picture. We're smiling. We're talking, actually. Actually, she's talking. 
And uh, what you might have thought she would be saying is, Daddy, I just so appreciate the fact that you're spending time with me on this daddy-daughter moment and walking me to class. No, what she was saying was, Daddy, would you please go back to the car? I can do this by myself. Let go. No, I'm not letting go. I'm going to walk you all the way into the classroom. That's our conversation. We get into the classroom. There's a guy from Channel 5 inside the classroom with his camera trained on the Norway for these special moments like ours. And uh, so, in fact, we watched it that night on the news. They captured us, and we're both smiling. But the truth is, for different reasons. I was smiling because of the moment, and she was smiling because she was going to get rid of me. And I was going to go back to my car eventually. She could do it on her own. Not exactly how I pictured that particular moment. Uh, Like that afternoon 20 years ago, I showed this in my greenhouse class, went around. My twins were about five years of age. My wife called me the office with panic in her voice. She said, honey, one of your sons, whenever she starts that way, I know that's going to be something interesting. Uh, one, one of your sons is in the backyard in broad daylight, jumping on the trampoline, wearing his little sister's one-piece bathing suit. She said, what do I do? I said, get the camera and start taking pictures. Take pictures, we can bribe him later. <laughs> what a picture that is. Not what I expected, but it's quite a, a picture. We've held with delight over that. When our twin sons were around five and their little sister was three and a half, our youngest daughter hadn't been born yet. Marcia would have the day organized with activities around the alphabet on one occasion, and and she was working through the alphabet with them. She laughed, told me this is how she survived three preschoolers. And this particular day was G Day. That was the letter of, of the alphabet. And so the kids, you know... Uh, dressed up and acted out animals whose you know, name started with G, and they made gingerbread stuff, houses, things like that, and things that began with the letter G were important that, that day. And then they were told by her that a wedding party has somebody in it whose, whose name begins with the letter G, G for groom. So why don't you dress up like a wedding party, you three? Well, Benjamin, evidently, because he's the oldest twin, two minutes older. He reminded his brother that for years. He won the toss evidently and he, he got to dress up like the groom. But who would be the bride? Not little sister. Oh no, we're not going to give that exciting job to her. She didn't get to vote. Marcia took the picture. I thought you might like to see a family classic here. There's Benjamin wearing my jacket down to his feet, no shirt on. He's got on one of my favorite t- one of my former favorite ties he's got on. And the blushing bride is his twin brother. <laughs> if you can see it closely, you can see behind that little veil they've constructed, he's beaming from ear to ear. This is exciting stuff. And their little sister, poor thing, <laughs> she's relegated the maid of honor and she doesn't even get to hold the flowers. You notice that? That's a classic picture. In fact, uh, oh, about a year ago, our son Benjamin uh, was getting married, and so we threw him a couple shower, he and his bride-to-be Caroline, and we put that picture up. You better believe we put that picture up. And our MC, as Wayne Knowles said, with that in front of everybody, he said, now, Caroline, we hate to mention to you, we hate to break the news to you, but even though it's a bad time to let you know this, Benjamin has been married before. <laughs> that is one of our family favorites. So for all of you among the 60, you know, maybe a new family member has arrived. Get ready. 
hang on for the ride of your life. Just don't forget to bring your camera along. And a lot of these pictures are going to look a lot different than you ever anticipated. When Malachi the prophet put down his quill, God put away the prophetic word. The Old Testament era was followed then with 400 years of silence. Not one word recorded from God. When God finally spoke again through his messenger Gabriel, one family in particular, an extended family, would have their lives turned upside down by children. One married woman who couldn't get pregnant would get the news from Gabriel that, that she was going to be. Her unmarried cousin, who shouldn't be pregnant, would get the news that she is about to be. The Christmas story will actually involve this extended family. In fact, most people think that when Gabriel arrived to end 400 years of silence, he came with a message to Mary. He didn't. The angel came first to the husband of Mary's cousin, Elizabeth. The story of Christmas is in many ways fascinating to me. It involves the lives of cousins, Elizabeth and Mary, and then first cousins, their baby boys, John and Jesus. This extended family is about to begin the ride of their lives. And if they had cameras back then, some of the photos would look very differently than anything they could have ever imagined. And so today, and for our next four sessions, I want to go back to the beginning with you and take a look at how the gospel writer in chapter 1 of the gospel by Luke delivers to us the news in this first chapter of not just one miraculous conception, but in another unique way, two of them. Luke chapter 1 and verse 5, after Luke introduces the gospel to his high-ranking official friend named Theophilus, he begins the story. Verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of uh, the Lord. Now, listen, at the the very outset, we're given some historical context for this story. This is taking place, we're told, during the days of Herod, the king. So immediately, we're given a contrast between a wicked man and a godly man, in fact, a godly couple. This is uh, the man known as Herod the Great. He was appointed king by the Roman Senate about 37 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. By the time these two cousins will be born, Herod is already known. He's established himself as a brutal, vicious man. He's already ordered the murder of the Jewish high priest simply because that priest was more popular than he was. He clung to this particular title with vicious power, the king of the Jews. It was his to claim and his alone, which is why less than two years later... He will order the execution of every little boy in and around Bethlehem. For one of them has been identified by visiting Persian dignitaries to be this king of the Jews. Matthew chapter 2. By the time you get to Luke's introduction in his gospel, Herod is about 70 years old. He doesn't have long to live. 
Before he dies, he will execute two of his sons simply because he can't stand the thought of them sitting on his throne. He throws his third son into prison and then has him executed after his son tries to escape from prison and fails. He is insanely jealous, petty, brutal, but he had accomplished one thing that kept his ratings soaring, brought him immense favor. He had expanded and refurbished the Jewish temple. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, tells us that this temple was refurbished, much of it reconstructed by the hands of 10,000 specially trained Jewish laborers under the direction of 100 priests. And they built something astounding. Josephus wrote that the temple was refurbished with imported cedar and white marble. Much of the temple, including the massive double doors at the front, were overladen with plates, solid plates of gold. Josephus wrote this description, and I quote him, that the sun was no sooner up that it reflected off those doors, of course, in the building. So fiery a flash that people were compelled to look away as if they were trying to look directly into the sunlight. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. For all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white marble. By the way, it was all designed by implication, to fulfill what their last prophet had promised just before the darkness had come and the silence of God, which had now lasted for 400 years. It was all designed to reflect effectively the prophecy of Malachi that said one day the brilliance of the sun, S-U-N, would rise. The sun of righteousness would arise with healing in its wings. Malachi chapter 4 verse 2. So the people are waiting for and they're longing for and they're praying for the darkness to be banished by the rising of prophetic sunlight. But for 400 years it's been darkness and despair and confusion and even corruption. No wonder Zacharias will say in his response to the angel's announcement later on in chapter 1 The sunrise is finally coming to shine upon those of us who sit in darkness. The sun's about to rise. Not for everyone. Herod the king, the darkness will only envelop him more. For him, the sun would never rise. And he's immediately contrasted then with this godly couple introduced to us by Luke in verse 5. In fact, we're told that this priest named Zacharias was faithfully serving in his division, the division of Abijah. We know from history that there were about 10,000 priests living in and around Jerusalem. And they were divided into 24 groups. Each of the groups was uh, assigned to work for one-week periods twice a year. His grouping was under the heading of this particular famous former priest, Abijah, which we know was the eighth-class or division of priests. And I know you're not going to remember that for the quiz, but I want to tell you that because that's significant. What Luke tells us is that Zacharias was not one of the elite members of the priesthood. He was weighed down the list. In fact, he didn't live in Jerusalem 
Only the well-connected, those higher up in the priestly hierarchy lived in Jerusalem. He was not a member of the priestly aristocracy. Zechariah lived out in the country. In fact, he would have been referred to in this day as one of the country priests. Never really making a blip on the radar of what mattered religiously. We're told that he faithfully served, however, in fact, we're told in this verse that he was married to Elizabeth, a direct descendant of Aaron, Israel's first high priest. In fact, she was named after the wife of Aaron, Elizabeth. Now, a priest in this culture who was married to the daughter of a priest was considered to have a a blessing. But for Zacharias, it was doubly so because he was married to a woman who was directly descended from Israel's highest priestly family. By the way, their son will act in many ways as a high priest should act before the people, preparing their hearts to hear the voice, the word of God. Now, you notice that Luke describes this couple with glowing terms. Verse 6, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Now, they aren't perfect. In fact, we'll see that in a moment. But they were passionate about the Lord, their God, and his ministry. Frankly, that's why the next phrase is so startling. Verse 7 says, but, I have told you everything that's good, but, note this, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. Now, this is shocking news, what you would have expected the next phrase to read, and they had 12 or more children. They were exceedingly blessed and prospering just as the Abrahamic covenant promised to those faithful ones from among this covenant people. That's what you would expect to read. No, but, he says, they were childless. Now, the religious culture around them would have been unforgiving in their prognosis. Faithful believers could expect to participate fully in the Abrahamic covenant. Blessings of prosperity and fertility. In fact, those that go into that Abrahamic covenant pull them out and wrestle them into the new covenant era for us. We call them prosperity theologians. That we ought to be healthy and wealthy and have everything we want. A misinterpretation of the covenant blessings. But for them, they're living in it. A barren woman in the Old Testament covenant would have assumed that she has somehow offended God. She has somehow been abandoned by his grace, maybe some fault of her own. In fact, everyone around her in her world, would they wouldn't say it to her, but they would, they, they would conclude it. They'd whisper it behind her back. That's why when Rachel in the Old Testament finally had a son and named him Joseph, she said, God has taken away my reproach among the people, Genesis chapter 30. That's why Elizabeth will later say in chapter 1, God has taken away my disgrace. See, the rabbis were teaching by the time of Jesus Christ's birth, there were categories of people, they had made this up, that were unable to experience close communion with God. And one of those seven categories was a Jewish man whose wife was unable to have any children. Because of that, they had established even further complications by allowing barrenness to be considered valid grounds for divorce. And so who does God choose to communicate with? 
Who does God come to? Outsiders. The unimportant. God is getting ready to turn everything upside down. Get ready. The sun is about to rise. Now don't overlook the last phrase of verse 7. Look there. Dr. Luke knows that we need to understand the extent of a miraculous conception of the cousin of Jesus. Luke adds this, this little commentary, this little footnote. They were both advanced in years. Your translation may read, they were well stricken. In, I like that translation. That's how you feel, isn't it? Well stricken, struck by the years, which is, by the way, I think a better translation because it allows us to understand that there were several different kinds of phrases the Jews used to categorize age. This was one of them, and that's insightful for us to understand. They believed that the commencement of old age began at 65. You weren't old at 60, 62, 63, 64, and when you hit 65, you were just commencing old age. I don't know how that makes you feel. I hope it makes you feel younger. At the age of 70, a Jewish person was said to have reached hoary-headed age, gray-headed age. In other words, at 70, a person was now among the gray-haired and the wise. I'm hoping when I turn 70 to have some, (laughs) to turn gray. At the age of 80, they were considered, they were called well-stricken in age. So Zacharias and Elizabeth Get this, they're in their 80s. They're in their 80s. They, at this age, their spotted hands would never, ever expect to hold their own child. So by the time we're introduced to them, you need to know they're, they're not praying for a baby any longer. And they're not praying to conceive by the providence of God. They were, they were a couple who stopped praying that decades earlier. They lived in this culture... In this generation, faithful to each other, even though God, for some unknown reason, and how they must have searched their hearts, God was not listening. They weren't in sin. They weren't hiding something. They weren't out of fellowship. They hadn't abandoned their heritage. They hadn't walked away from their faith. They were in the middle of God's will, even though God had never given them their greatest wish. The name Zacharias means God remembers. The name Elizabeth means the promise of my God. I can't imagine how over the years the enemy would have whispered to them, oh, oh, is that right? God remembers you? God is the keeper of his promises to you? I can't help but stop and ask the question for all of us, what does it take us to stop worshiping him and serving him and trusting him? How easily do we give our ear to the enemy who whispers, God doesn't care about you? His promises are for everyone else but me. 
Like Joseph Parker, the, the, the famous pastor in London who pastored at the same time as Spurgeon several generations ago, he wrote into his journal these words, Oh God, why is it that your hand of blessing is on everyone else but me? You ever felt that way? What I love about the rising sunshine of God's redemptive light is that God uses an ordinary country priest, someone who really never made much of a contribution to the priesthood, in the eyes of his peers and their neighbors. He was just an old man who's probably reaching the point where they expect he'll, he'll stop going to Jerusalem. In fact, why bother? He's married to a descendant of Aaron. That's wonderful, but everybody knows that even though they lived respectful and and, and dignified lives worthy of appreciation, they're obviously under some kind of divine disapproval. They're obviously experiencing some kind of divine displeasure. We don't know what it is. We don't know, but it's obvious that God cannot bless them. See, the remarkable thing to me, ladies and gentlemen, is that in spite of all of this, Zacharias didn't quit. He didn't resign. And Elizabeth didn't come along and say, listen, Zacharias, God hasn't paid his, his fair share. We've been living and serving God for more than 50 years, and we've been living under this cloud of suspicion, and, 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 and it, it hasn't been worth it. Why don't we hang it up? I wonder if you or I would go 50 years living under that kind of cloud the darkness that they must have felt often and the silence of God's voice. Instead, this priest from the country twice a year would gather his clothes, pack his saddlebags, get somebody to look after the estate and look in on his wife, and she would pack some food, maybe patch his robe, prepare for her own week of silence as he went off to serve a God who seemingly wasn't all that interested in them. They stayed at it, even though now at the age of 80 they had stopped praying for certain things like children or grandchildren, or great-grandchildren. You know, in a different context and setting, I couldn't help but think of the biography that I read of William Carey, the great missionary century-plus ago who spent more than 20 years translating the Bible into different Indian dialects. He just, he was called the plotter, and he said, if I can't do anything for God, at least I can plot. He just worked hard. His biographer recorded how one day his warehouse caught fire and literally burned to the ground. He lost his manuscripts. They lost several Bible translations that were in production. There were no extra copies. 20 years of his life. The typesetting characters used in his presses, and most of them melted down into, into clumps of, of, of steel. The next day was Sunday, and he was supposed to preach. He stood before the congregation and said, My text for today is Psalm 46, verse 10. 
Be still and know that I am God. He went on to say to the congregation that he was confident of two things. His sermon had two points. Let me give them to you. First, that God has the right to dispose according to his will as he pleases. Secondly, our duty as believers is to acquiesce to his will. Now, that didn't mean it was all roses and they went around, you know, whistling, you know, great hymns of the faith as he walked around that burned down warehouse. No, in fact, he would write to a family member. This was a heavy blow. He wrote, and I quote, Oh, the providence of God is dark. There doesn't seem to be any light. It's dark. There's no sunrise in sight. It doesn't make any sense. You can't figure it out. Be still and know that he is God. And evidently somewhere in the lives of Zacharias and Elizabeth, they had come. Certainly they would have known that sultry. They were willing to continue to serve even though he was someone they could not figure out. But all that's about to change, by the way. So fast you cannot hardly believe it. In fact, we're going to pick up the pace at verse 8. Now it happened. I love that. It just so happened. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, in other words, now get this, he's, he's in Jerusalem now. He's come for his week of service, verse 9. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord, which is how they did it, and burn incense while the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense burning. Listen, here's what's happening. Hundreds and hundreds of priests never had the lot land on their name. Thousands of priests over the years had never had the honor of entering the holy place to offer incense, to burn it before God as a symbol of prayer, the prayers of the nation ascending to the very presence of God. This was the ultimate culmination in a priest's office and ministry. In fact, it was so unique that you could only do it one time in your entire lifetime of ministry. At 80 years plus, the lot falls on his name. He will now represent the entire nation in prayer before God in the holy place. Now here's how it happens. We'll pause and let me read in between the lines and set the stage for you. He would be allowed to choose two friends, two priestly friends who would accompany him into the holy place. Between the three of them, they had some duties to perform. They would trim the wicks, clean the table of showbread, take the old loaves out, put new loaves in. Uh, They would bring coals, burning coals from the brazen altar in and put them into the cleaned altar of incense, which they would clean and then place the burning coals there. And then those two friends would reverently back out of the holy place leaving Zacharias alone in there by himself. While he's in there, the two priests back out, they strike a gong, and everyone that has come falls prostrate in prayer before God, including all of the priests. They're now on their knees before God. Zacharias would walk over to the golden 
altar of incense where those glowing coals were. And he had a container filled with liquid frankincense, a, a costly fragrance or perfume. And, and uh, he, no doubt with his heart racing and his hands trembling, he would pour. He poured that, that frankincense out on top of those coals and was immediately engulfed in billowing clouds of sweet-smelling perfumed smoke. It was a symbol of the sweetness of the prayers of the nation ascending to God. And by the way, implied in the gift of frankincense to the little boy, Jesus, by the Magi, you remember, that would be a symbol of the coming sweet intercessory ministry of prayer that is taking place to this day on behalf of his people by Christ, our high priest. Heart of Zacharias must have been thrilled at the pleasure of this unique ministry on behalf of, of his nation. To a man who never seemed to be noticed, to a couple who seemed to have been overlooked by God, they, they considered the lot to be, as Solomon wrote, in the, in the hand of God, and it fell on my name. And I'm in here. I'm representing the nation in prayer. What a what a joy and a privilege. That's just about to start, though. That isn't the end of it. Because as the smoke clears, Zacharias realizes for the first time that he isn't alone. Now let's go back into the text at verse 11. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. That's the biblical way of saying he was petrified out of his gourd. He's in there alone with an angel. And the angel, by the way, will identify himself later as Gabriel. The same angel who 500 years earlier had come to the great prophet Daniel. That same angel that will come later to Mary. Gabriel says to Zacharias what angels typically say to human beings when they encounter them. Don't be afraid. Stop being terrified. Our vision of angels is they're fluffy and white and we get to sit in our lap and sing to them in harmony. These are imposing heralds of God. And so he says to Zacharias, stop being afraid. <laughs> what Zacharias do? Okay, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid, I'm not afraid. Okay, now we got cl- that cleared up. What are you doing in here? 400 years. Silence from God. No angel sightings. No prophetic word. And all of a sudden you're here. Watch this here carefully. The angel says to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You will give him the name John. Your petition has been heard. Certainly the petition of Zacharias on behalf of the nation. Is, is being heard, but that's not the construction of this phrase. Specifically, Zacharias, your petition to have a son has been heard. But wait a second, that wasn't Zacharias's petition. He's in his 80s. He's not in there praying for a son. He had prayed that prayer 50 years ago. He had prayed a million times that prayer 40 years ago. 
No doubt he and Elizabeth, with tears, often prayed that prayer 30 years ago until they had stopped. Zachariah says, God heard your prayer 50 years ago. He knew Elizabeth's feelings of disgrace 40 years ago. He knew that cloud of suspicion hung over you 30 years ago. And when you finally stopped praying about that, he knew that too. See, what's happening here is Gabriel is delivering the stunning revelation to this old prophet or this old priest and to every one of us. Listen, Zacharias, just because God never answered you does not mean he didn't hear you. He heard your prayer the first time you prayed it. He knew you wanted children. And he knows that you and Elizabeth are well stricken in age. And unless he performs some kind of radical internal surgery that turns the clock back on both of you, it isn't going to happen. Zacharias, the sun, is about to rise on redemptive history. And you and Elizabeth, an unknown country priest... And a woman that have never been believed to be in close communion with God, you are chosen to bear the forerunner of the Messiah. Your physical inability is now the perfect platform for God's supernatural ability. Can you imagine these family pictures? Oh, what a lovely grandson. Oh, it's not my grandson. Oh, great-grandson. No, it's my firstborn. (laughs) What are you guys eating? Supplement program you're on. Imagine this is not what they expected in life. And their son, by the way, would be named John. Chosen for them. Which means the grace of God. The grace of God. John would become a daily reminder to them that God's grace had indeed been sufficient to help them persevere through the darkness of their own nighttime when the voice of God had been silent. And and it it would also stand to, to, to tell them that his grace would be sufficient to help them enter the challenging days of parenthood at the age of 80. One day at a time, one challenge at a time, one snapshot at a time. You put their three names together and you have this statement. God remembered his promise and his grace was enough. And by the way, no one will be able to miss the fact that the Messiah and the Messiah's forerunner, these cousins, Jesus and John, are both, in their own unique way, miraculous conceptions. Father, it is such a a delight to get into your word together. 
with the assembly and and dig and learn. Ultimately, it it brings us to worship you. Yes, we thank you for giving us a couple like this who persevered. Lord, we have no idea how they persevered. And, and we, as a, as a body, I, I would sense that we, we want to thank you for choosing a couple like this. How wonderful is your grace? It, it gives us even just a little more confidence that you can use us too. We thank you that you are indeed a God who hears our petitions, even ones we've prayed 50 years ago, or maybe last night. And your grace is sufficient. Would you help us to trust that? To close our ears to the whispering of the enemy who accuses you to us and us to you. Thank you for the sunrise that was about to take place nearly 2,000 years ago and the sunrise that took place in our hearts as we came to faith brought out of darkness into a marvelous light. Let's sing together. Oh, come let us Bless you. Go in his peace.